Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for being with us. In this episode, the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire in the war between Hamas and Israel. This despite 13 nations voting for it. The Biden administration is getting hard blowback and not just from the expected places. A federal judge approves a settlement barring the separation of migrant families. An appeals court has upheld but narrowed the gag order on a certain former president. And finally, one of the toughest pieces I've ever had to do in a podcast. Let's begin, shall we? Israel is continuing its relentless assault on Gaza regardless of what's becoming increased opposition to its tactics. Yet before we get to that, we have to talk about the reports of rape, murder, and mutilation of Israeli women by Hamas on October 7th. There's also the issue of whether those reports were thoroughly spotlighted by the media, because there has been a whole lot of criticism of the media for not really dealing with these reports. Strangely, the issue seems to have disappeared by this past weekend. And I say that because I looked and looked and didn't see a great deal about it. There was a, a, a huge groundswell, uh, which culminated, by the way, in women coming to the UN and taking the UN to task for not doing more to spotlight these allegations. But it seems to have sunk right back into the ground. Now, Hamas, for its part, denies reports of rape, mutilation, and murder. If they turn out to be true, they further brand Hamas as a bunch of barbarians who are unfit to take a place among civilized organizations. However, and this is important, there were early reports that Hamas had beheaded babies. Remember that? Those reports were at best shown to be unverified. And so the charges and countercharges continue unabated. There are other developments that don't bode well for the tightrope the U.S. is trying to walk in Gaza. America vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution that called for an immediate ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. Thirteen of the 15-member council voted in favor, with the U.S. voting no and the U.K. abstaining. Needless to say, Arab states were not happy at all with America's action. One thing most folks have thus far failed to contemplate is this. Is Israel's bombing campaign in northern and now southern Gaza actually working? And if so, at what cost? Foreign Affairs magazine, certainly no tool of Hamas, published an article recently titled Israel's Failed Bombing Campaign in Gaza. In it were the following words, and they're telling, quote, 50-plus days of war show that while Israel can demolish Gaza, it certainly cannot destroy Hamas. And that was their stated intent, not to level Gaza, but to destroy Hamas. I said a few episodes ago that indiscriminate bombing of Gaza can in fact create more Hamas fighters. And it looks like some publications are starting to follow what I said earlier. Hamas has also been affected in spreading propaganda through its messaging app, Telegram. To top it off, even the Israelis admit their operations in Gaza have killed twice as many civilians as Hamas fighters. It is from the families of those dead civilians that Hamas will recruit future fighters. The obvious solution is to negotiate a two-state 
solution to the current crisis. Yet this has been tried before time and time and time again, and it's never worked. The Palestinians have seen what they see as their land eroded by Israeli settlements. There's also a New York Times article, and it's a, a pretty explosive article, truth be told, that says that the Israeli government under Benjamin Netanyahu was prepared to say that Hamas was preferable to the Palestinian Authority because it kept Israel from having to negotiate a two-state solution and that they, the Israelis, allowed Qatar to send money to Hamas, and a substantial amount of money, I might add, um, in an effort to try and bolster it and to give money to civilians in Gaza, which, of course, the Israelis believe, and they may be right, that that money actually went, if not directly to Hamas fighters, it allowed Hamas to free up money that they would ever otherwise have to spend on fighters uh, to do other kinds of things, and then, of course, to fill the gap to the fighters. So there's a question here about the extent to which the Israelis were actually prepared to allow Hamas to flourish in Gaza through these donations from Qatar, which the Israelis allegedly facilitated. I don't understand how that works, but that's what the New York Times article alleges, and they cite some credible sources for their information. Now, if it's true that a, quote, concept paper produced by the Israeli intelligence ministry advocates driving the entire population of Gaza, two and a half million people, into Egypt, there can be no hope, repeat, no hope of peace in the region now or in the foreseeable future. That would be a state of affairs, a sad state of affairs, one that would cause a great deal of political damage to whoever is in charge of the U.S. government. In the short term, that would be the Biden administration. In the meantime, women and children on both sides are suffering. History will judge whether those sacrifices were in fact in vain. Up next, a judge in San Diego approves a settlement that's good news for parents crossing the U.S.-Mexico border who have been separated from their children. This is The Intersection. Happy festive season from Mark Riley and the team at The Intersection. Welcome back to The Intersection. One of the more draconian components of the years of Donald Trump was the policy that allowed officials to separate undocumented migrants from their children. Trump's zero tolerance policy allowed officials to put parents in detention centers while their children were sent to shelters. At the time, there was no plan to reunite them. Some were apart for months, some for years. Trump, for once in his presidential career, saw sense and stopped the policy in June of 2018. Though it only lasted from May to June of that year, there's evidence officials practiced family separation through the end of Trump's term in 2021. The judge who forged this settlement, U.S. District Judge Dana Sabrow, was brutal in his assessment of the policy. And I'm quoting him here. It does represent, in my view, 
one of the most shameful chapters in the history of our country, end quote. Judge Sabrow, it should be noted, is a Republican appointee. Not so strangely, Donald Trump doesn't see it that way. In fact, he hasn't ruled out reimposing the policy if he wins office next year. In an interview just last month, Trump said, quoting here, it stopped people from coming by the hundreds of thousands because when they hear family separation, they say, well, we better not go. Given his other anti-democratic pronouncements of late, that policy could become active again in 2025 if he's reelected. And speaking of Donald Trump, much as I hate to, a federal appeals court has largely kept in place a gag order that puts limits on his more over-the-top utterances in terms of the case accusing him of plotting to overturn the 2020 presidential election. It did give him leeway to criticize Jack Smith, the special counsel overseeing his prosecutions. The ruling also loosened restrictions on criticizing witnesses as long as he doesn't badmouth their roles in his case. One wonders if there's a gag order that's ever been issued that will stop Donald Trump's tirades. He's made some pretty outrageous statements since facing 91 criminal charges, but that's pretty much par for the course for him. He remains the Republican frontrunner for the presidential nod, no matter what drivel comes out of his mouth. 92 things can shut it. Conviction on all accounts he faces and losing next year's presidential election. Not sure if it's going to happen. We shall see. And finally, a painful conclusion for me personally, as I think he's done a decent job, but it's time for Joe Biden to declare victory and drop out of the presidential race. This is The Intersection. You're listening to Mark Riley. It's the only podcast where the world makes sense. Welcome back to The Intersection. What I'm about to say pains me greatly since it's not my habit to ignore a politician's record in arguing whether that person should be elected or, in this case, re-elected. Yet, in the cold, hard light of day, I have to say that Joe Biden, a president who has done a great deal for America, should drop out of the presidential race. I've come to this conclusion after a great deal of thought and a great deal of contemplation. I also know a lot of people who I respect will disagree vehemently with this conclusion. Yet I think Joe Biden must drop out in order to prevent a second term of Donald Trump. Granted, Biden could still rebound in public opinion polls and beat Trump head to head. That is, if the GOP is anal enough to make him their nominee. Make no mistake, Joe Biden has done many good things as President of the United States. He steered the nation through the COVID pandemic with a skill not seen by many in the developed world. He's presided over a recovery from the pandemic, complete with a startlingly low unemployment rate. I can remember in my recent memory when the notion of a below 4% unemployment rate was considered unattainable, and yet it now hovers between 35 and 3.8% below what most economists were calling full employment. That happened on Joe Biden's watch. 
Yet the sad part is he gets no credit for it. No credit whatsoever. He's also protected veterans, children, and many other segments of American society. The American public, I repeat, seems to be totally oblivious to the good things he's done. Many people are focusing on his age, which is a factor, but not the only factor. The sad fact is, if polling is to be believed, Joe Biden risks being a one-term president just like his predecessor. And I should say, in all fairness, that polls are, at best, a snapshot of public opinion at a particular time, and it really bears saying and repeating the fact that polls use, in some cases, very different methodologies to come to their conclusions. I tend not to look at any single poll, but I do tend to look at a collective average of polling. And that's where I say Joe Biden could risk being a one-term president. I know the Democratic political establishment is fully behind this president. I would expect nothing less. Many, many people who I love and respect tell me I'm wrong, that this isn't the time to say he should pull out of the race. For me, the final straw was the additional charges facing Biden's son, Hunter. Some say it may distract his father at precisely the wrong time. Most Americans know how loyal Joe Biden is to his family. And under normal circumstances, that would be considered a really, really good thing. In this case, it could be the thing that puts a target on Joe Biden's back. They're already trying to impeach the man, which I predict, obviously, they will not be successful in doing. But it certainly, Hunter Biden's situation, gives Republicans additional fodder to label the Bidens as corrupt, even if there's little or no evidence to back it up. And yes, I know that Joe Biden will be the only clearly pro-choice candidate running next year if he stays in the race, and that is a powerful incentive to drive women to the polls. And I think maybe some of the pollsters have ignored the extraordinary blowback that women have certainly put in the middle of the political arena to the Supreme Court's de demolition, essentially, of Roe v. Wade. It did play out in last year's elections, and it's going to play out next year as well. The question is, how strong will that blowback be? My problem with Joe Biden is his appearance, among other things. He looks lethargic, even if, in fact, he's not. Optics has become increasingly important in politics, and Joe Biden, even when he's trying to look animated, doesn't come across that way. For me, all this put together puts this president at real risk. I know it should not be this way, and I can't emphasize this enough. It shouldn't be this way. Joe Biden deserves a second term, one that would see him, or could see him, achieve some of the things he hasn't been able to do in his first term with, at a point, a hostile Congress, and certainly a hostile House of Representatives. Despite my believing this, I still think it's time for him to quit. It's time for Democrats to pull together around a new candidate with fresh ideas to keep the American economy on the same winning path that Joe Biden forged. I know being leader of the free world isn't something most people would give up willingly.
Still, the Biden message does not seem to be resonating with the people it should. Again, if the polls are to be believed. And I know that is a big if. My logic is as follows. Donald Trump has a puncher's chance of beating Biden in next year's election. If the winds of Republican politics change and somebody else wins the nomination, someone younger and more vital, Joe Biden could be in even more jeopardy. Sad to say, with all that he has accomplished, it's time for Joe Biden to solidify his legacy, looking back on his stewardship of the nation during this turbulent time and deciding now is the time to step down. By doing so, I believe he'll go down in history as an effective, unselfish president who put the nation and his party before himself. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well. <laughs>